Um, you can uh, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1 if you happen to have your Bible with you. If not, you'll find them in the racks there in front of you and you can follow along that way or up on the screen. Um, before I forget to uh, mention it, um, next Sunday evening for 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, or if you wish you were in that category, um, Lori and I are having a bonfire out at our house, so feel free to come out for that. It'd be a great opportunity for you to get to meet some other people and there will be food. Um, other thing is... Uh, Please take very seriously the invitation to baptism. Uh, myself, I was 23 years old when I got baptized by immersion, um, and I was already working in ministry, and I had never been baptized and um, realized, wow, I'm kind of doing this thing in disobedience here. Um, and it was a real humbling thing for me to go to the pastor of that church, even though I was already teaching, and say, you know what? I, I need to be baptized um, as an example that I'm really being obedient to Christ. So think about that. If you've not been baptized before, this uh, might be your opportunity to put your stake in the ground and say, here's who I am. I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 1 because we've been working through this um, 40-day series here. And you know, in the first week, we talked about praying specifically. We looked at how Isaac's servant went out and found a, a bride for Rebekah. And he, he prayed outside the city very, very specific prayers about the things that he wanted to see God do. And, and we saw, obviously, how God came through for him. Last week, we talked about Jesus telling us we need to not just pray, but pray earnestly that God would send laborers out into the field because there's a lot of people who need to discover Christ. As a matter of fact, in our church this week, we had people come to Christ. I, I think I know of at least four who profess Jesus Christ as their Savior this week. So we see that specifically what Jesus said is that there's a lot of people willing to respond if we just put the invitation out there. So today we're going to look at this question, which was raised on Monday by Mark Batterson in the book that we're working through, Draw the Circle. How big is your God? We've got these seven things that we've been praying about, the, the list that you're familiar with, and one of those in there is that we would have a bigger view of how God wants to act in our life. Is God so great in your life that you trust Him no matter what? Do you trust God no matter what? If you pulled a $1 bill or a 5 or a 10 or even a quarter out of your pocket right now, you would see an emblem stamped on there, and it says, In God We Trust. 1956, the United States of America said that will be our official motto. It was voted in by an act of Congress. It was actually introduced by a pastor in 1864, just after the Civil War ended. The pastor sent a note to Congress, to his congressman, and said, We need a national motto that would say, We're a nation that's based on the principles of God, should it say, in God we trust, so they begin stamping it on nickels. In 1956, they actually acted it into law. It took them that long. No wonder it's taken so long to get our budgets done. hundred years to agree on a motto. But, but that motto has been on there since 1956, on all the fives, the tens, the fifties, the hundreds, the quarters, the dimes. In God we trust. Do you trust in God no matter what? That's why I want you to look with me at Daniel, because Daniel is a person who exhibited what it means to trust in God no matter what. What if a law was passed in your country that made it illegal to pray in public places? 
What if a law was passed in your country that made it illegal to pray in private places? What would you do? Is God so big in your life that no matter what, you would continue to pray? So crucial, so decisive. And if you think a law like that cannot be enacted, I'm here to tell you that it can be. We watched it happen in the 1960s in the school systems. That law can be put in place. What would you do in that situation? Well, here's the question for you. Is prayer so crucial in your life that you're willing to die for it? In Daniel's case, it is. Now, I had you turn to Daniel chapter 1, but I'm going to put a verse up from Daniel chapter 6 because I want you to contrast the two. Daniel in chapter 6 is 90 years old. He's the president of Persia, what we know today as the area of Iran and Iraq. He answers only to the king of Persia. He's been elevated that high. He's in his 90s, and the king decides to enact a law which makes it illegal to pray in public places and to pray in private places at the risk of your life. And in Daniel's case, if you grew up in church, you know the story that the the consequence was that you would not just be killed, you would be thrown to the lions and they would shred you limb from limb. So here's Daniel's response when the document was signed. Look with me at verse 10. It says this in chapter 6, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. See, God's really big in his life. God's bigger than man, and God's bigger than man's laws. Matter of fact, let me show you this version. You just saw the ESV, the English Standard Version. Look at this one on the screen. It says in chapter 10, or verse 10, He prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. That means since he was a boy. He'd been doing this his entire life. Because he understood who God was. How do you arrive at the point in your prayer life and in your walk with God where your walk with God and your life with God is so crucial you're willing to surrender everything, even your own life, rather than dishonor your Heavenly Father? What Batterson went on to say in, in day 8 this week, if you happen to read it, he said, when it comes to prayer, our biggest problem is our really small view of God. We tend to think that our situation is bigger than our God. So a question for you to ponder this morning as we work through this. Is your situation bigger than your God? Or is your God bigger than your situation? Which one weighs heavier? See, God's capacities cannot be constrained, and Daniel understood that. Matter of fact, we don't even know how to pray to God in the right fashion. Let me remind you of this, what it says in Romans 8.26. We do not know how to pray as we should. That first part should get your attention because it should resonate with you. Anybody here feel like that? You don't know how to pray as you should? I'm right there with you. And I told you a couple weeks ago, sometimes we just fall into this babbling pattern and we find ourselves going, oh, sorry God, I did it again. Look at the last part of it though. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Meaning that God knows you so well. His Spirit, who indwells you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, really knows the longing of your heart. And He can interpret that and reiterate it back up to God. The the Spirit intercedes for us. 
Because God knows that we don't even know how to pray as we should. Once you embrace the omnipotence, meaning the power and the size of God, the scope and the size of your prayers will change. Let's move on and look at Daniel. I want you to get an image in your mind of who he is, an accurate image to go with chapter 1. Here's the problem with Daniel. This is the way most of us see him. We think of him as this 80-year-old guy who's in the lion's den. And, and he's in this place where he's arrived where this flowing beard and he's in this place of intimidation. Everybody thinks of Daniel in the lion's den. He's old. He's really old. He's the oldest 16-year-old you've ever seen. Because in chapter 1, he's 16 years old. In chapter 6, he's in his 80s or almost 90. But in chapter 1, he's just a teenager. And the setting here that we're coming into is that Daniel is part of a group of people who are being hauled away by captivity to Babylon. As a matter of fact, this is what happened. King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Persia, was so powerful that he laid siege to Israel because he wanted their gold. He wanted their jewels. He wanted their temple articles. And he wanted slave labor. And as he did with every other country that he came across, he laid siege to Judah and attacked it. And for two years, he starved them out Literally to the point where people weren't even feeding their own children anymore. They were only feeding themselves and they were killing donkeys. And according to Scripture, they were eating donkeys' heads. And it sold for a ton of money. That's how desperate they were. Daniel lived through that. That was the circumstance. And so we find in verse 2 of chapter 1, it says this, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Jehoiakim was the king who stood up against Nebuchadnezzar. But God allowed them to be conquered. And as Scripture often does, without any fanfare, it reports the ending of another nation. Israel, Judah, ceased to exist. They decimated them. They destroyed the temple. They tore down the walls, wiped them out. If Daniel's parents are still alive after the siege, and we don't know that they are, what could they say to him in that moment to prepare him? He's being put in chains and he's going to be hauled hundreds of miles away to a country he's never been to. And for Daniel, and we're going to get into the book of Daniel next year. I don't want to spend a lot of time in it right now, but just understand this. When Daniel arrived in the Fertile Crescent, the area of Babylon, the sights that he would have seen as a young man would be awe-inspiring to you today as well as to him. High-rise structures that were built. And if archaeologists hadn't found the information that we have available to us today, we wouldn't know what he encountered. But we'll come back to that next year. Let's step into verse 3. Because what we find immediately is that we've been ushered into the throne room of this king. The king, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, says in verse 3, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, Youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now notice it's a really careful selection. The king is choosing sharp, good-looking, handsome, intelligent, with great personalities, those individuals to stand before him. And here's why it's so unique. Because you either find people who are really, really handsome, but they're dumb as a bag of bricks, or you find people who are really, really smart, but they have no personality and no capacity to stand in the presence of the king. So what he's done is he's sorting through and he's sifting through and he's finding the cream of the crop, the brightest of the brightest. And this is a rare combination. Why? Because he's going to mold them and he's going to shape them in a three-year course 
That's what conquering kings did. They took the best and the brightest of the land, reshaped their thinking, and used them as an example to the rest of the nation that they had conquered. Because if you can beat the best and the brightest, the rest of them fall like dominoes. And they begin standing in line. So that's why they choose the best and the brightest. He's going to use them as an example of dominance. So if you come to verse 5, what you find is the chief official begins stripping away their identity. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So within this time frame, Daniel's losing his home, his family, his surroundings, his religious structure. He's losing his lifestyle, his freedom, his food, his name, his language, his parents. Everything is being stripped from him. And he's a teenager. He's losing everything except his faith and his integrity. I know some of you like to write in your Bible, so you might be curious with this, but the names Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are the names of the four chief gods of Persia. Bel, meaning the chief god. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are the names of the god of the sun, the god of the moon, and the god of fire. Those are the idols that those people worshipped. God's small g. And they're being told, this is going to be your new identity. Now, I'm very, very impressed as I look at this story, and I've studied Daniel for years. I see zero indication of any rebellion on his part or any retaliation. In a really gracious manner, he just makes a mild request. Look with me at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. What rates higher in the category of importance than food to teenage boys? Okay, now imagine you've been under siege for three years. Everybody around you is at the point where they're starving to death and then you're hauled in chains for three months across the desert to this new city. And you've been presented with a king's banquet table? What rates higher for a young man who's desperately hungry than the king's food? This is the king's banquet table, and I'm not talking Burger King. This is feast food. They have just endured horrific circumstances. And yet Daniel has resolved himself. So we need to understand what this word resolve is. It's in your notes this morning if you grabbed one of the bulletins when you came in, but you see the word up on the screen as well. The word sum is the word resolve. It's a Hebrew word. And it literally means to determine or to purpose. But here's how they used it. When they would go out into the wilderness area and they would find vines and they wanted to construct or create a rope, and they began weaving together the different strands or cords to make a rope, when they would braid it together, it was the process known as sum. Meaning what Daniel has done here is he's binding together his resolve, his understanding of who God is. He not only knows God's Word, he's going to use it in his life. And that cord that's being intertwined together is going to give him the resolve to stand in this moment and say, not me, 
I'm not going to defile myself. Why? Why would eating the king's food defile him? Well, at this period of time, as was the custom with many foreign nations, they worshipped God, small g, with idols that had been erected. It might be a statue to a specific god. And before they would eat, before they would sit down to a meal, it was very common for the individual who would lead the meal to take a platter of food and put it on the floor in front of the statue and dump out a cup of wine in front of the statue. And in the same way, doing what you and I do today when we sit down to a meal and we thank the one true God for the source of our food, Father, thank you for what you've given me. Thank you for what my family has. What they were doing was thanking the small God, small G, saying, God of the fire, God of earth, God of moon, God of sun, chief God, thank you for giving us all this. So Daniel recognized what they're doing is worshiping idols through their food. So he's resolved himself from the very beginning, I'm not going to cave in to what I know is wrong. No matter what the pressure, no matter what the outcome, in God I trust. See, he's got the model long before the United States. His decision forever altered the course of his life as a 16-year-old. See, he could have been another insignificant slave that's been hauled from another conquered country, morphed into the society of Babylon. But because he chose to drive his stake in the ground, God honored this decision that you see him making here. You're going to see it unfold in just a moment. He's transforming him into the robes of a leader. Was there risk involved? I see the nodding of the heads because you know that there was, if you know the story at all. Warren Wearsby had a really interesting insight into this passage. I was reading his comments earlier this week, and I want you to see his quote. Christians have no right to ask others, especially unbelievers, to take risks they won't take themselves. Now you might think, how, how does that relate to what we're looking at? Christians many times are so full of compromise that people who don't follow Christ would look at lives of Christians and say, what's so different about you than me? I mean, your life choices are no different than mine. Wearsby's got a great insight here when he says, we have no right to ask others, especially unbelievers, to take risk we won't take ourselves." Daniel is a person who's willing to take a risk because he's convinced he's not going to conform, but rather he's been transformed And so he understands what it means to stand for God. How can you ask others to turn if you won't personally turn from the things that you know defile you and stand for the one true God? Daniel, in his case, determined before the smells of the banquet hall, teased his teenage appetite. He determined that he would be resolved. He set up these chambers in his heart. Can you do that? Before you go to the convention center, before you step on the jet airplane, can you, can you set up that wall to say, everyone else might go there, but I'm not going to. See, Daniel's a long ways away from home. Nobody knows that he's there other than his friends who are also teenagers that are right, right with him. I want you to look very closely at verse 8 before we move on <clears throat> to see something that's fairly subtle, but it's so important. What, whatever the arguments are that have presented themselves for preservation of life. And I'm sure Satan's there tempting Daniel at this point. Come on, Daniel. That food looks so good. Nobody's going to know. Your mom and dad aren't here. Your, your synagogue rabbi's not even here. It's just you and your friends. 
whatever those arguments are that are presenting themselves to him at this point, Daniel has determined to die rather than dishonor God. Here's what I want you to notice that's really subtle. He did this before approaching his superior. The word therefore that's in verse 8 means that he drew the resolve line. He understood what his boundaries were and therefore he went to the chief of the eunuchs and he asked for permission. He's not allowing the reaction of his superior to determine the factor of what he's going to do. When is the time in your life to make up your mind to follow God's path? I believe it's before you walk in the nightclub. Before you get on the jet airplane. Before you step in the car and drive to the place you shouldn't drive to. That's when you draw the line and say, on this I will not compromise. I will not defile myself. You resolve in your own heart that God with you will help you build a wall around your mind, keeping yourself from those influence. What did Daniel use to build a wall? How did he do this? A very basic human desire, food. God designed us to want food. So this is a basic desire that Daniel has. He's a hungry teenage young man. How does he put himself in the place where he's not going to be defiled? Two things, prayer and Scripture. The knowledge of God's Word and communication with God. You can't separate the two. And we talked about this over the last couple weeks. You can't separate prayer from the knowledge of God's Word. You can't separate your knowledge from God's Word and not have prayer in your life. The two have to go together. You can't separate them. Now, you might ask me, how do you know, Mark? How do you know that Daniel was that way? Well, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Let me, let me show you to know how to know that. To defile oneself meant to go against the things that God had told you you weren't supposed to do. See, God had told the people of Israel in His Word long past, don't go to those idols. Don't eat the food that they use for those idols. God, small g, have nothing to do with them. Daniel knew God's Word so well that even though he'd been hauled a long ways away, he didn't need a copy of the Bible in front of him. He knew what God said was off limits. And because as we've already seen in chapter 6, this is a praying man. This guy is a prayer warrior like none you've ever seen. You need to study his story. He brings these two together. He understood what it meant to defile himself, and he's resolved, not me. I'm not going to involve myself in anything unclean. You know what he's done? He's chosen convictions over conformity. He's not going to conform his life. He's not going to compromise. Just like when he said, throw me in the lion's den. I don't care. I'll pray with my window open. The entire government can see me. Go ahead. Feed me to the lion's I know what my convictions are. Before we move on, very closely in verse 8, look at this. You'll see it on the screen again. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He's asking for permission in a way that might catch you by surprise. This word ask is very gentle in the English language, but in the Hebrew language, this is an intense on-your-knees begging request. This is a young man who's very convinced about his convictions. What you're looking at here is confidence, not arrogance. Go with me to verse 9. Let's see how they responded. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. You notice from the very beginning, you might be convinced that Nebuchadnezzar is calling all the shots. 
Nebuchadnezzar said, this is what you're going to learn. This is your education program. This is what you're going to eat. This is what you're going to drink. This is how you're going to dress. This is how you're going to worship. But let me show you something on the screen. Verse 2, verse 9, and verse 17. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim into his hand. God had caused the official to show favor. God gave knowledge and understanding. See, even though these young men could have felt completely abandoned by God, they trust in God that he's behind the scenes. He's working in all this. He's got everything under control. He's moving silently, changing attitudes, altering decisions. In desperate times in your life, things may feel completely out of your control. You ever had a feeling like that? Things feel completely out of your control? That's because they are. They're completely out of your control. But they're never out of God's control. Always under His control. So in desperate times like with Daniel, we come to this place and we recognize those are the times we most need to trust in God. Usually the situations that make the least sense are when God's really up to something magnificent. That's why he says in Isaiah 55, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So high is the heaven above the earth are my thoughts above your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8. Check it yourself. So if you feel abandoned at times, and be really honest with yourself, if you feel like God's abandoned you, that's when you most need to draw near to Him and say, Father, I absolutely can't fix this. I feel alone, I feel desperate, but I know that you have control over this situation. A couple big passages we're going to take in chunks right now to get through the end of the story. Verse 10 says this, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with a king. Verse 11, Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Here's what I want you to observe from that great big chunk we just looked at. Daniel has focused on that which he could affect within his own sphere. He's not asking them to change the diet of the entire nation. He's not even trying to change the diet of the king's palace. He's saying, in my sphere, in this place, how do I bring God glory? I see no attitude of, how do I get out of this? God, take me back to Israel. But rather, what I see here is, what can I get out of this? What do I do to function within the system that I've been placed in and yet give God glory and let him put his power on display? See, that's the mindset of this young man because God's going to take care of the little things and the big things. I want you to see just one thing in verse 12 before we move on to verse 15. This rendering of the word vegetable vegetables in some texts is is fairly inaccurate because immediately you get in your mind zucchini and potatoes and tomatoes and squash you think that's not so bad Uh, uh, actually the hebrew word when used here is the word for grain see he's asking for three years of oatmeal how many ways can you serve oats over the course of three years he's asked for grain and water not even asking for milk Water and oats. 
it's going to start feeling like Gilligan's Island pretty soon where they just had bananas. That, that, that's what's really going on here. This guy is saying, just give us the basics. Okay, go with me to verse 15. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. That means they weren't fat. They looked healthy. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables, verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. See, God has worked in ways that has caused even his natural enemies to be at peace with him. That's why King Solomon wrote what he did in the book of Proverbs. When a man's ways please the Lord, he causes even his enemies to be at peace with him. You're seeing it lived out right here. Go with me again to verse 18. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better. What is it that set these young men apart? God is preeminent in their life. So you understand, Daniel had no power over his circumstances whatsoever. No power at all. But this is the one place where he did have power. He had power over his reaction to the circumstances. How big was his God to believe that even someone eating oats could stand in the presence of the king because he decided, I'm not going to defile myself. A very, very difficult situation. So their view of God is big, big enough to trust them with their very life. And so do you know what God did? God blessed that decision. When you trust God to be big in your life, do you notice what he did for Daniel? He didn't just make him appear healthier. He gave him understanding and wisdom and discernment, the ability to interpret dreams, and Daniel was elevated in the king's presence. And that sets up the entire book of Daniel. Why? Because what you have here is a young man who would rather offend man than offend God. And that's a remarkable person. A big, big view of God. You and I know what it's like to live in Babylon. Every single day, our core values are assaulted. Your convictions suffer a bit of an earthquake on a daily basis. Some of you on an hourly basis. Temptations come your way. Things you want nothing to do with. And Satan knows your weakness. And those are the things he keeps throwing up in your face. So you live in Babylon. How do you keep from becoming part of it? Those three things that we've been talking about. Look at it. It's in Daniel's life. You'll see it again on the screen. These same three things keep propping up. Your first priority, put God first in every single decision. And that leads you, it drives you to your knees to prayer. You're seeking his wisdom and his counsel. And I'll add this, his intervention. Because there's many things you can't do on your own. You need more than just his wisdom and his counsel. You need God to intervene. And that leads us to purpose. That we would seize the opportunities that God brings our way. That's what Daniel did. 
He acted on believing that God was big. So how big is God in your life? Michael's going to come and lead with the worship team a song. And it's very, very familiar to you. I know if you grew up in church, you know the song, I Surrender All. How big is God in your life? To the degree that you can surrender everything, what you're holding on to, I'm confident that over the course of a weekend when there's hundreds of people that come into our auditorium, that there's at least one, two, three, five, ten, twenty that are dealing with something that they're holding on to. And so I'll just say it and throw it out there through the work of the Holy Spirit. If there's something that you're holding on to, this might be your moment to do what Daniel did. Say, God, I'm just going to surrender that issue. Maybe it's something that you can't fix. Maybe it's a mountain you can't get over. It might even be your own personal salvation. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ. Is your God big enough that you can surrender that issue? What are you holding on to this morning? So rather than having you stand at first, I'm going to ask you to treat this song as a prayer. Because when you say these words, you know God's listening. And when you say, I surrender all, you better mean it. So start out in your seat or maybe on your knees or maybe face down on the floor or maybe you want to come to the altar and just kneel there. At some point, you'll feel like standing. But between now and then, think about those things that you might need to surrender that maybe you're holding on to. Say, God, I want you to just take this from me. But that begins with closing our eyes and I'm just going to ask you to pray with me. Would you do that? God, we look at a a young man like Daniel who at 16 completely surrendered everything that he had and were humbled by it. Father, we would love to know that we could be in that same situation where when we're tested and put under trial and under the microscope that we would find ourselves being just as faithful. But that's for another issue, Father. Right now, I ask that you help us to examine our hearts. Are we in the place where we have surrendered to you? And I ask that for myself as much as I will for every person who will come into the auditorium over the course of this weekend, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will examine us. Look upon us, Father, and in your gentle leading in the way that only you can lead, help us to surrender that which we're holding back from you. For some of my brothers and sisters tonight, it might even be the discipline of prayer, that they just haven't made time in their life for it. God, that you would work in their heart, that you intimately want to have conversation with us. For others, it might be much, much bigger than that, God. I don't know, but only you do, and I just ask that you would work on us right now. In Jesus' name, amen.